Earthbed Muscle is a grassroots supplement company created by some of the best strength coaches in the United States to provide their athletes with wholesome supplements. Earthbed Muscle has changed the supplement industry with their minimal ingredient approach to sports nutrition. Dane's platform is also brought to you by the Acceleration Diet. The Acceleration Diet is a customized weight loss program catered to each individual, their needs, and their schedule. Accelerate your metabolism today with the Acceleration Diet. Finally, Dane's platform is also brought to you by Holistic Encapsulations. Holistic Encapsulations provides organic hemp extract with an incredible 27 to 1 CBD ratio. Loaded with CBDs, hemp extract has been shown to decrease anxiety, have a positive impact on cancer, improve sleep, improve brain function, and decrease inflammation. Head over to HolisticEncapsulations.com today and get on the path to holistic recovery. Alright guys, we're here for another episode of Dane's Platform and I have the pleasure of introducing a Olympic bronze medalist, a two-time world champion and two-time world silver medalist, and that's Reese Hoffa. Reese, thanks for joining well, thank you for having me. So, I've got to say, Reese, growing up as a shot putter, you were like my absolute hero, where it was like, okay, Reese is shorter, he moves well, this is the guy that I want to emulate, and this is the guy that I want to be. So, I'm, I'm extremely excited to have you along. Well, thank you for having me. <laughs> all right, so we're going to, I want to jump right into all these questions because I got about 3,500 questions going through my head. Awesome. And um, I want to go over, you know, your childhood. You had, you had a little different childhood where you were adopted, I think, when you were four years old. Four years and, old, yeah. Okay. And, um, you know, a lot of people bring that up, and, and they, they harp on this story a lot. Uh, that you did have this different childhood. And I just want to see what, what was your perception of, that, of your childhood and your upbringing, and did you perceive it as being different, and how did that impact you? Um, it definitely was different. Um, the way it impacted me was at a very young age, um, I pretty much was ingrained that if I was going to be successful in life, I had to do it on my own. Like, I wasn't going to be, like, saved and there's going to be, like, some magic person. If I was going to go and do anything great in my life, I was going to have to work hard. So, you know, being put in an orphanage and doing all the those kinds of things by yourself... Um, I guess I, I kind of grew up quick in a way and it just instilled in me this idea that if I'm going to save myself it's really on me I can't blame the world for anything that doesn't go my way I kind of have to make my own successes okay yeah that's that's awesome uh, and I guess you know at what age did you sit there and like maybe acknowledge that lesson and even sit there and say like, wow, like my, you know, my early childhood, you know, when you're four or five years old, like mm -hmm. I'm now I'm 14, I'm 15 years old. I acknowledge what happened, you know, 10 years ago and now I'm going to, I'm going to roll with it. And I'm going to do something positive. Did you, you know, do you remember acknowledging that like at a certain point? I think now from age, from birth to four years old, I didn't even know what sports were. Um, I was never really exposed to that. It wasn't until I was adopted at four and I was brought into the Hoffa family did I ever see a football game or do something athletic. So the moment I saw something athletic and sports related, I initially, I just gravitated right to it. I said, I got to do that. So for a long time in my life, I thought I was going to be a football player. Um, I was pretty rough and tumble when I went to school. I was usually one of the fastest, strongest kids. So I'm like, I'm gonna be, I'm definitely gonna be a football player, 
And I, I, in some ways, started training myself to do that. You know, from second grade to fifth grade, I'd run to school every day. I'd run to school and run home. Just because I'm like, this is my training. I would uh, make up uh, routines on my bike. I got a bike when I was, I don't know, 12. So I'm like, yeah, I'm going to... I'm going to ride my bike every day for 30 minutes and find the toughest hills to climb because I need to build my legs. That's how you're going to get faster. Right. And I just do, you know, just do crazy stuff like that, not even really knowing anything about, you know, what you have to do to get strong. I just like this is in my mind. That's what you had to do. You always have to train. So for a young, for a, at a very young age, I knew you had to train to be great. Like you, you don't become great on the couch. You get great because you're outside jumping and running and lifting stuff and luckily my parents really encouraged that um gave me a ton of uh, very tough chores moving wood moving metal digging holes so lucky for me you know i, I it just it paid off All right so at what how old were you when you first picked up a shop i was and in elementary school, I think I was in third grade. My coach there bought a shot put in, and uh, that was the first time I ever picked up a ball and threw it. I was horrible. Um, <laughs> even when I actually started doing it, I, I, I threw a shot while playing baseball in eighth grade. I, was, I still wasn't very good. I mean, I think the, the best I ever finished was fourth. At a meeting, most of the time I'm finishing eighth and ninth. Like I was, I was not that spectacular of a track and field athlete until I took another two years off. I took my freshman sophomore year off from doing track and field and played baseball, and then decided that I no longer wanted to do baseball anymore. And I was looking for another sport to do. And just so happened, uh, David McCovic, who was my high school coach, was like, "Hey, why don't you throw some shot?" So I'm like, well, I'm not doing anything, so why not? That's that's how I got into it. Okay. So at that point, were you still playing football? Yeah, I played football. You know, for the moment, my parents would let my parents wouldn't let me play football until I got to middle school. I I, I nagged them, so they they let me play soccer. So I did soccer, played a little basketball, did the baseball thing, but um, when I finally in seventh grade, the the greatest day of my life. Um, I finally got to play football on an organized team, not just play in the street or in my backyard. And um, I thought that was that's it. This is the beginning of the life of Hoffa. I'm going to be a. I'm going to start playing football in seventh grade. I'm going to play until I'm a professional. Right. So. <laughs> Were you a D tackle? Yeah, I was defensive tackle. I played a little guard. Um, in our in high school, they didn't have a center that could. Uh, Shotgun snap, so I played center for a little bit and taught another kid to take over because I, I was one of the, at five foot eleven um, where I lived. I was probably one of the strongest kids in my school starting in, I don't know, maybe my sophomore year, maybe junior. So I was on the field like I played offense, defense. I was on kick. I did everything, and it, it, to me, it was just normal because when I was in middle school. Pretty much the moment I stepped on the field, I never stepped off. And I stepped off the field on halftime, and then when I went home, I was on the field yeah, all the yeah. time. <laughs> so, what? You know, walk us through then, like your junior year in in track, and and then your senior year. What did you, you know, what did you throw as a junior? What did you throw as a senior? And what do you think was key uh, to those those two years? So my my junior year, 
the first competition I ever threw shot, you know, outside of middle school, right? And I'll just say middle school, I threw 40, I threw 40 feet. That was the best I threw in middle school in eighth grade. Um, I came back, I threw my first competition, I threw 47 feet with a 12-pound ball. And that was like the first week. By the second week, I broke 50 feet for the first time. I threw 51 feet. And then by the fourth week, I was up to 56 feet. And then the another week after that, went to state and threw 58-8. So that was kind of like my progression. I started basically about 40-ish and then got up to almost 60 feet within one year. And then worked all summer um, on becoming a rotator. So basically, I, I glided all the way up to the state championship pretty much my first year ever throwing shot. And then at state, we'd been working on it all during that time. And, and lucky for me, I, I was in a really weak region or state or whatever where I didn't really have to throw that far to win most of the meets. I could stand through, you know, 40 feet and win most of the meets. So I did. So there was really no pressure on me. I just was just kind of learning. But finally at state, I actually had to do something dynamic because there was a kid that was pretty good. It went 58-8, won this, the meet on my second throw, rotating. And then from that moment on, I was a rotator. Winter, or live and die by the rotation at that point. And then my senior year, uh, did a couple meets indoors, went uh, 63-9 at the National Scholastic. That's where I got uh, second. And then ended up throwing 64-3 at the state championships my senior year. And then uh, went off to college. Oh, and uh, the the key to that was um, I had a you know Coach Mac. We actually had Brent Noon who threw seventy six feet. He actually was at University of Georgia, so he went up there and he kind of taught him a little bit about the rotation, and that was kind of the key, just um, how to be fast, pushing out of the back of the ring, how to strike the ball. That that's pretty much how I got where I was at. So your best throw in high school was sixty four three. Yeah. And then you ended up. That was was Babbitt at Georgia when when you went there as a freshman. I was uh, I was actually Don's first recruiting class at University of Georgia. Okay. He uh, got the job in '96, and then in, uh, he just started recruiting kids. And he took whoever was there, and then he recruited me, um, a kid named uh, Marku. Who's the uh, Re- uh, Riku? What's his name? There was another shot putter from Finland. He recruited. So they basically, the like University of Georgia gave them a ton of money to bring in throws, which I was very happy about. Right. And um, that's, uh, that's how I got there. So, you know, with the with the whole football background, and then you're starting to get successful your junior and senior year at track, you know, did you have to pick between football or track going into college, or did you sit there and go, well, you know? Um, no, uh I, I I didn't have to choose. I I knew because I, I pretty much for some reason because I'm an elitist. I, I wanted to go to a Division one school. So when it came down to it, I think I was looking at like Troy, the, like pretty much Division three, maybe two schools. And also, what hurt my football. And I, I think I'm I'm very grateful this happened. I moved when I was in eighth grade, but my transcripts all the recruiting letters went back to my old address. 
So what what really and if it, if I would have got those letters because like the Miamis and other like major Division one schools were actually looking at me for football, but then they kind of rescinded those offers or just interest once they found out I was a, a good shop owner. So walk us through your collegiate career then, because to me it's interesting that you know you never won an NCAA title. So you know a lot of guys think you have to win an NCAA title for you to continue being successful and uh, you know have a post collegiate career. But you know walk us through those four or five years and and what your mental approach was, and you never ended up being a champion. And did that keep you thirsty, you know, post collegiately? Well, see, uh, I, I I believe. You know, kind of. I, I there were a lot of schools during my recruiting process that said that a five foot eleven, two hundred and fifty pound kid could not throw a sixteen pound ball. So, a lot of like my freshman year is just kind of proving them wrong, just being diligent to the task of being a thrower and learning as much as I possibly could about throwing a heavier implement. Now, I have pretty big hands. I'm a pretty powerful guy. So the 16-pound ball really, it felt good to, to throw something like that. So my my freshman year, indoors, I threw 61, 8 or 9. Outdoors, threw 63 feet. And a lot of the, and I, was, I ended up being like an outdoor All-American, but, you know, a lot of people were like, oh, uh, I didn't think it. And maybe it's just there hasn't been a lot of shorter rotating athletes or just so new in the rotation. I don't can't really put my finger on it. But they were surprised that I made it to nationals as a true freshman. They were surprised that I made it to outdoor nationals as a true freshman. And a lot of that, you know, when I get there, you know, most of the people there are a lot bigger. You know, I had the Brad Snyders of the world, uh, Giannis Roberts, Joachim Olsen. So these are guys that had been training and preparing themselves to throw that 16 way before me. I don't want to be delusional in thinking, I could win or be competitive throwing the rotation when I've only done it for up to that point two years of rotational experience doesn't win a national championship in in, uh, in college. So just going in, I just wanted to survive, become an All-American. Sophomore year, just kept getting better, uh, learning about how to compete in the rotation, kind of the ups and downs, because I'll get it one week and then I'll lose it throwing the 16. You know, that, that was kind of the, the reality of my world. So, you know, Don did a great job managing me, helping me figure out what I need to do to be more consistent. So by the time I got to my junior year, um, I was getting better, but I, I wasn't I wasn't a 20-meter guy until my senior year. So I was getting killed by Joachim Olsen, who could throw 21, and uh, Giannis, uh, um, Joachim and Giannis, that were both 21-meter guys and had international experience from uh, South Africa in uh, Norway. But I didn't give out give up hope. Um, the 2000 Olympic trials gave me, made me feel like, hey, if I can finish six, that's where I finished six at the Olympic trials. I'm like, I'm not that far away from making the Olympic team. Maybe I should just keep plugging along and maybe by the next Olympics, I'll be closer. And maybe by, you know, 2008, I can make my first team. That was kind of my approach and what I was thinking. So, you know, 2004 <laughs> comes, you make, you make the, 
you make the Olympic team in 04, but let's go back yeah. and talk about, I got, I got two questions. I want to know, like, early on, what, you know, what was Don's technical model with you, or did you have a technical person that you watched um, that you sort of tried to emulate? And, and, and one thing I always struggle with is that I'll, I'll use you as the technical model quite frequently. Um, and everybody always says, oh, well, he had a heel turn out of the back. <laughs> and, I, and I'm always like, I don't care. What, like, <clears throat> he had a heel turn out of the back, but that you know, that was for X, Y, or Z. But it doesn't matter. The rest of what you did in, this, in the circle, to me, is very technically sound. And I, yeah. you know, where, I guess what model did you use, if you did use one, and then mm -hmm. where did that heel turn come from? Well, uh, my technical model, so my the people that I really looked at uh, were Randy Barnes and uh, Brent Noon. Um, a little bit of John Godina, but it was a lot of Randy. That's why I was so wild out of the back of the ring. That's why I kind of pull everything to the left. You know, uh, to me, it seemed like Randy was very active with his left arm out of the back of the ring. So I, I emulated that. The uh, heel turn part of it was just lack. It, crazy enough, it's a lack of technical understanding of the rotation. Uh, when I first learned the rotation, my coach just wanted me to move, fat, move as fast as I possibly could, but still push and make the ball go somewhere. And I did. I mean, I, I fouled so many throws. Like I could in, in high school, I could make the ball go seventy feet. There was just no chance. I was kind of like uh, Brian O'Field. I could never hold it in, so I had to go slower to keep a throw in. So that ended up being sixty-four feet. And when I got to college. Don tried for years to try to say, okay, let's get out on the toe. But I had built a technical foundation on that hill turn. And we, we, I mean, even until, you know, six years into my professional career, we're still trying to work on it. And it just never went. And it, it just, it just and, and I think it goes down to, for the younger throwers, whoever's teaching you the first time to throw, their fingerprint's going to be forever on your technique until the day you die. Right. You know, like you've like because you, you get successful doing a specific technique. If there is something technically inaccurate with it, it's it's going to show. It's going to be there forever. So I, I I had pretty much doomed myself in a way to forever have this low uh, line drive throw, essentially. I was never going to really be able to lift the ball. And even, you know, with Don, I mean, Don, we tried and tried. And when we tried to change it, I think people, you know, kind of don't understand this. When I was throwing in high school, I did thousands of throws. I threw every other, every other day for a year and a half. Rain or shine, football, it didn't matter. I made myself throw a year, and I just ingrained this, this hill turn from that point. So when I got to college and Don's trying to fix it, even though, and I was also, I threw the weight and hammer, so I had other events I was doing, it just, we didn't have enough time to fix it. So by the time we got to the indoor season, so we, we start in September, so we have October, November, December, and then you have holidays in there, so you have three months, essentially, to try to stop someone from throwing far. Because every time we change it, I would lose two or three meters off the throw. So we, so Don just like kind of had to concede to, all right, we're going to have to keep the hill turn because you can throw 64 feet with a hill turn 
in comparison, well, it looks really technically well, but you throw 1750. So that that's kind of <laughs> that's why the hill turn's there. I would never teach anyone the hill turn, but if you kind of look at it, what it does, since I'm not very tall, it puts me in a position to really drive across the ring. Like I get a lot of ring penetration, but that last element where I kind of bring the leg up, it allows it to get under my body, and then I can work a, a baby uh, vertical in there, which allows me to hold it in the ring. Right. So, Do you think that that really did hold you back at all, long term? You know, if we, in a way it did. I mean, I, th I wished I could lift the ball. But, you know, but it did teach me how to throw that ball really fast. I mean, I, I, that ball is, is a bullet out of my hand when, I, when I'm throwing well. And when I do throw a little bit higher, and this is what's crazy. Sometimes I, I got myself in, I say, 2006, 2007, I, I figured out a technique that allowed me to lift the ball and I two, won two world championships. But, you know, when you're training for long periods of time and trying to be a professional – you can't hold on to that technique forever because who I was as an athlete is different. So as I evolve as an athlete, the technique's got to change with me. Um, I, maybe I couldn't hold the positions. Maybe I, I can't really put my finger on it. So all of a sudden, the, instead of going really high, stall ball starts coming back down, and then it comes back up again. It's just like this ebb and flow of throwing. And if you keep the same technique, you'll get, you'll get beat. Because you can, because you'll have to. When you're throwing, my philosophy is you have to be dynamic. In the moment you stop being dynamic and not able to do what you used to do, then people are just going to start beating you, and you'll start seeing a reduction in distance. So, I always try to evolve. Yeah, I, I think that that's you know that evolution that you just described is something that I wanted to bring up from my own perspective. Is that I was taught you know to rotate early. Uh, Sort of emulating Andy Bloom with that like deep squat position, mm -hmm. and I used to watch you throw. You know, from, so I went to college. Two thousand two was my freshman year, and okay. that was sort of when you were the, the unknown shot thrower. Yeah, um, and I remember watching you throw, and I remember the first time I think you broke seventy feet was at a Home Depot. Yeah, and. Okay, so let's get back. We just had some technical difficulties. <laughs> if we get back to talking about you evolving uh, technique, and, and you know, so I was taught how to you know spin with this deep squat, sort of like Andy Bloom, and maybe Godina a little bit, had even a deeper squat out of the back. And then I see you throw seventy feet for the first time. You're the unknown shot floater. It's at the Home Depot meet, like two thousand two or two thousand three. I forget when. Um, and I remember watching you throw and thinking, he doesn't start real deep. He's got a taller start. Like, what, why can't I start like that? And I guess, you know, I, you know, Barnes did throw more upright. I think that that's like one big misconception. Everybody thinks you do have to start real deep. And I think I just wanted you to sort of walk us through quickly, like that position out of the back and what you would feel and what you would try and look for with that right leg and the left arm, what was that doing, and then what you would try and feel in the middle and then through the finish, because that, I think that that's something that a lot of people have misconceptions about in, in technique. Mm -hmm. I just sort of wanted to see your take on it. Well, um, I too went down the Andy Bloom, John Godina position 
deep squat position for a little bit. Um, when I threw 2050 my first year out in 2002, that's what I did. But uh, talking with Don, we kind of looked at it and just like it just does. It's not. I don't feel like I'm fast enough. So we went to a position where I would do a, a long wind, a little bit more upright, and the focus would be almost like I'm falling onto the the left in a way. Not really, just control fall. Um, and that allowed me to, to load that left and generate power out of the back of the ring. Now, of course, it, obviously, I mean, it took me a while to kind of perfect it and, and get everything the way I wanted. So my approach out of the back of the ring is I want to feel myself load the left and spring off the left leg. Uh, my goal in the middle of the ring is I want to feel my right foot rotate in the middle of the ring. So I don't want to just air pivot where I just jump, I feel like my foot lands, and then I go. I almost want to feel like I'm almost under-rotated, and I'm rotating myself into the finish because it allowed me to feel my, my right side when I did that. So I just got to, you got to hold it. So if you look at a lot of the positions I hit, it looks like I'm almost falling backwards as I'm going through the middle, like I'm trying to do an inverted, like a javelin inverted C position. Yeah. But that's just so that I could stay on that right side. And then when the left, when that left foot kind of went down, now I'm really pivoting around that right and then trying to extend up through the throw and just kind of lunging right side through the ball. So that that's kind of in general what I, I try to accomplish. And when I'm throwing well, I feel those positions. Right. And uh, it, the, the ball usually goes, it's just is a lot of tr- like I'm carrying a lot of speed. So when I catch it back, it's just it flows. So it doesn't even look like I'm trying to do that, but that's kind of what I'm trying to do. I'm just trying to feel that right. Because anytime I started feeling too much of the left, right, I'm kind of rotating and I feel the the that left leg block almost too early in a way. Um, I usually fall to the left. And then I'm falling off the ball and I'm throwing it 10 feet outside of this out of the the uh, the ring. Because I'm being a little too rotational, I'm not feeling the middle. I'm just air pivoting too much in the air, so it takes that left leg takes forever to get down, and the ball, who knows where it's going to go. Right, and that's that sort of brings up my next question: is that I like to use you and Krauser as examples with the left leg coming out of the back, where you know your right leg would ground, and that left leg was almost past your right foot, and you both have a lower left foot, like your left foot doesn't get super high. It stays low and grounds really fast. And I, do you have, like, did you have anything that you thought about to get that left off quickly? Or do you, did you, you purposely keep that left foot lower or is that just the good feeling? I think it's good feeling. Um, I, a little bit of that came from, uh, Brett. Um, I got the pleasure to just kind of pick his brain on, what he tries to do when he throws, and he likes to—he likes that idea of keeping that left low, not letting it go up and kind of loop around. Um, I didn't always—I mean, I don't always do it perfectly, but that's kind of the intent. I want to keep it lower, so I want to get the left down faster. Because I always felt like if I can get the left down faster, I can start the rotation of the right side with a bit more velocity. You don't really—you can't start rotating on the right until the left gets on the ground. So the faster I get that left down the longer I can pull on the ball and make it go somewhere. So would you think out of the back, would you push off that left or would you? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I Like, you look at my shin angle out of the back of the ring, I am pushing big time. If I don't push, 
I don't go anywhere. I'm not, I'm, I'm not tall enough. Like, and that's where my technique kind of differs from like the, um, John Godinas. John, just talking to him about his rotate, like his approach, he never really tried to, to push that hard out of the back of the ring. It's just more hitting a position and then letting the uh, right leg come through and then kind of swinging the, the left back down. He never really thought of put thought about pushing. He just wants the foot to be in a position. He's not actually pushing. I actively pushed because I had to generate power and speed. I mean, speed for uh, if you're going to be shorter, you better have a lot of speed. So I always looked at trying to create speed throughout my entire throw. So do you think that using that left arm a bit more out of the back and then, you know, even even in the middle, I felt like you held that left arm a little bit where yeah. it would sort of wrap up. You know, do you think that that did help generate speed out of the back and then having that control in the middle was pretty crucial to a good finish? Absolutely. Um, whenever I got in trouble, that left arm swung too far to that left corner, like towards the left part of the toe board, and I that would pull me out. Whenever I kind of controlled it and held it a little bit in the middle, um, the way I look at it, kind of like uh, Tom, what Tom kind of yeah. tries to do. That's kind of the approach I would like to use. And it's the way I look at it, it's like you have the push out of the back. The second part of acceleration for me is left arm swing around. So I really try to rip left side to generate more power and speed through the, through the finish. So yeah, talking a little bit about technique, I wanted to see, did you ever throw various implements or did you always just train with the 16? Um, I, I usually only threw, and it, it depends upon where I am, like in uh, October, like my pre-training, I throw only 6Ks for most of that month. Then I would step up to maybe a 14 and a half for two or three weeks of November and then I worked my way into a 15 and a half by December. And then I would do about two weeks to maybe a week of 16. And then I would start competing. And then when I come back from meets, I would only pretty much only throw 15 and a half most of the time. Um, I rarely threw the 16 unless I was competing. Because the 16 is a brutal ball. And it takes a lot out of you. Especially if you're smaller. Yeah. I think, you know, moving on from, from the technique and the shots and all that stuff is that I, I've i always heard that you were one of the hardest people to compete against. That, um, not that you would talk shit, but you would ask people and they were always so, like, jovial while you were competing and talking and, and you know, expressing yourself or saying to guys that you take a big warm-up and you'd be like, hey guys, how'd that look? And... I wanted to get a sort of a peek inside your brain because I'm fairly certain that you've thrown 21 meters more than anyone in the history of the world. I'm, I'm almost positive. Yeah, I have. You're right. You're correct in that in that assessment. You, you know, they they I think they put in uh, 2012. You threw 21 meters for the hundredth time in a comp. But I was interested to see if they counted every single throw that you've ever taken that was been over 21. Like in my mind, it's got to be two or three hundred times. It's up there. Um, I've, I've done 130 competitions over 21 meters. And then I think number two is probably Christian at 115, maybe 120 in there. Wait, how many times is it? 131. 130. 130. Okay. Um, 
And the only reason I know this, um, me and Christian, we were sitting in uh, Madrid in, a, in our hotel. We're just, we have a lot of time on our hands. And Christian looked it up. At the time, the person that held the record for most 21-meter competitions was uh, John Godina at 85 times. And then Udo Bayer was there at 84. And then it was kind of me and Christian. And we just got, and I was sitting, and, you know, Christian was way ahead of me. And I'm, I'm just like, you know, it'd be really cool to get close to this number. That's what I, that's kind of what me and Christian kind of were joking. And then at, from that moment on, the game was afoot. Me and Chris, that was that was the biggest competition. We just we wanted to see if we could beat the two, pretty much the two greatest shot putters of all time in terms of twenty one meter throws. So we just we set at the task, and then slowly, you know, Christian started having injuries, and then I was just I was the tortoise. I just <laughs> stayed nice and steady. You know, I get my 17, 18 throws a year, and you know, you do it for twenty years, you uh, you you get a chance to throw one hundred thirty throws. Yeah, and I think I think that's one thing that pisses me off is that a lot of people don't really factor you in as one of the best Americans ever. And I mean, they, they, yeah, they will talk about you. You're up there for sure. Yeah. But in my mind, 130 comps over 21 meters is is absurd. It's insane. And and that's where you know, did you have you get you you have these throwers that get into such bad funks in training and they can be so negative getting into coming into training because they can't feel it or, or whatever and like how what was your approach like in training to prevent you know any negativity and stuff like that for bringing you down I, I think like anybody um, you know the greatest psychologist I've ever had was probably Don Babbitt Don just kept me even for most throughout my entire career and we've had our yelling matches and blame matches and everything. But through the whole thing, I, I've always known that Don's had my back and that if Don said it looked good, then it was good. Uh, I never really questioned it. And I just, I just kept going. And Don, like, he's seen my career from the very beginning. I could have a bad practice and Don's like, well, you remember that one time you had that bad practice and you still threw 21 meters? I think this is the case. So you're like you just brush it off like okay I'll just uh, fine I'm still I'm still good this is just a bad practice and you know and, and lucky for me I'd say ninety percent of the time he was right it didn't matter how bad my practices were when the lights came on I would perform and throw you know twenty one meters or sixty nine feet or seventy feet in a, in a meet because I'm I'm generally a pretty competitive person I um, I've always taken the mantra that. If you're going to pay me a lot of money, you have a certain expectation of performance. So when I go to a competition, I'm, I'm going to that competition expecting to perform well. And if I don't, I feel bad, like I'm, I'm taking your money and you're not getting what you paid for. And um, I've always had that, that idea. And a lot of the meat directors are like, they're very, they're very appreciative and very happy to have me at their events. Like if he shows up, he's going to throw well. Because the, the the odds that it doesn't happen are so rare that they, they couldn't remember a moment where I actually went to their meet and I didn't throw well. Right. Now, did, let's go back to that. Where, where I've heard a couple guys talk about competing against you and that it was hard to compete against you because you would just put in these little, not that they were, not that it was shit talk, but along the lines of like, playing those mental mind games. Was that on purpose or was that just for fun or what? Oh, absolutely it's on purpose. Um, <laughs> yeah. Look, th this, this is the thing. Christian Cantwell, 
and all these guys physically are way more superior than me. So I always tried to play the position of a little bit of weakness with, with those kind of guys. With the younger guys, I always played up that I'm better than I am. Like, oh, you know, I had these, I went to practice, I wasn't even breaking 20 meters. And what I know, like, 90% of my practices are over 21 every single time I throw. Like, I was, I was very consistent. But, you know, you go in, oh, I've had nothing but bad practices, and you go out there and you hit, oh, yeah, I've really been working on that left arm. Did, did I only keep that left arm in? And you just start playing in their mind. And to be honest, like in 2014, I had probably the greatest acting I've ever done in my entire life. Where I was actually, I, I was coming off a knee injury from 2013, but in 2014, I put enough work in to make people believe that it didn't matter what they did, I was going to win. So like, even like even a David Storrell, like David Storrell threw, uh, okay. So we're back for the third session here. Third of, session. So uh, talk about the mental game of throwing. So, um, being, trying to psych out my, my opponents has always been a part of my game. Uh, I've always let them think I'm weak when I'm actually strong or if I'm strong, I let them think I'm a little weaker. And I like to think that I set up a mentality that they're supposed to lose. So like in 2014, um, I probably wasn't in the best shape of my life, probably 21, 40 kind of shape for the, nearly the entire year. But everyone had seen me throw 21 meters so many times that anytime I threw it, they thought, well, he could get to 22. And I think even, and maybe I'm wrong, but people like David Storrell that year, who probably should have been the Diamond League and world number one, ended up losing to me a couple times just because I believe he thought, well, I'm supposed to lose to him because he's this good all the time. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. It's crazy because uh, you, 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 if you beat people enough, they just kind of get used to that idea unless they're just throwing out of this world. And that's what happened. I mean, I, I threw one – I had one amazing throw at like 2180-something, but the rest of the year I was like – I'd sneak in, like I'd go to um, Scotland and through like uh, 71 feet. And it was enough. I mean, Storrell's like, oh, I guess I'm supposed to lose. Right. <laughs> yeah. I guess, so, you know, when you're talking about these other guys being just these huge monsters and, and, I, and you're this a smaller guy that's got to you know, play more of a mental game against their physical game, if we talk a little bit about the physical side, like what, what were – weight room numbers or goals or lifts, specific lifts that you would use to really prime you up to, to get in good shape? Um, I had a philosophy that as long as I could go in the weight room and bench, I think it was 385 pounds and squat around 410, I was strong enough to throw far. But I had to be, but I had to be in enough of a physical shape. Like I had to, you know, I mean, I'm squatting sixes and trying to get close to 500 during the fall, but during the season, that's my base. And I never really went too much higher or too much lower than that. So if I got off a plane going to Doha, um, that's 13 or 14 hours of travel, I still could go in the weight room, lift those numbers, and not have it affect me physically. Like, my body would recover really fast from it. Um, as long as I was in that kind of shape, lifting-wise, I was fine. Did you do, did you do Olympic lifts at all? No, not really. I hated Olympic. I, I did Olympic lifts in college. 
hurt my back it in uh, my junior year hurt my back really bad I thought I was gonna miss that year and uh, just talking to Don and Don's like the key to always throwing far is being healthy and okay. doing Olympic lifts if that's what's gonna hurt you then stop doing it did you do, you know, box jumps or anything like that, or was it just predominantly, you know, squat bench, maybe strict presses? I remember yeah. seeing a video of you doing like behind the neck press or something. That behind that behind the neck press for stack video was all staged. Okay. That was probably the 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 first time. That was probably the first time I had done that particular lift in five years. Like it's not that I've never done it. It was just like Don's like, well, we got to find something to do. So like, okay, let's do a behind the neck press. I'm pretty strong, so I, I did it, and uh, I actually ended up hurting my uh, my uh, traps that day. <laughs> so it's crazy. Like sometimes you just can't believe what you see. Like I did a hurdle circuit on there too. Really didn't do a lot of hurdle circuit. Like I do sprints. I do stair stuff. I do box jumps. I do you know hanging leg raise. All those kinds of things. Um, but sometimes, as I like to think, it's just propaganda. I'm just throwing out randomness to see if people actually think it's true. Yeah, yeah. But that's also like your whole game. Yeah, you got to make like anytime I talk about my throwing numbers and what I'm doing, I always you know you increase it by half a meter. So <laughs> if I say I was throwing 21, I was probably telling Christian I was throwing 22. Right. You got to so, you got to play the game. Yeah, and I I guess before we get into I wanted to go over, you know, just where people can find you and what you're doing at the, the Hoffa Throws Academy. Um, I wanted to walk through, you walk us through that 22-43, I think it was, in, in London. Yeah. Or, you know, and, and the, the feeling, the emotions, and, and just that PR throw. Well, uh, that year, me and Christian kind of going back and forth, it kind of started indoors. Um He'd beat me in a meet. I'd beat him. Like I went to Seville, beat him by one centimeter. He beat me somewhere else. So we're going back and forth. I went on a little bit of a run outdoors, went to the U.S. outdoors, um, feeling pretty good. Went to Madrid, and uh, that was at that meet. That was like the first time I lost outdoors or something. And uh, it wasn't Christian that beat me. It was uh, like Manuel Martinez or something. So we go to the meet. Thought okay. I'm around 21. In the sixth round, either fifth or sixth round, Christian throws a 21-56 or something, takes the lead. And for some reason, I had in my mind, like, I'm not letting him beat me. I, can't, I cannot let Christian beat me. So my goal was like, okay, I'm going to throw 21-67. So I went around that speed. I went out and got it, and it left my hand, and then that thing just kept going. I was like, yeah. wow, that's weird. And then when it came back, and you can't really, I couldn't tell how far it went. I didn't realize it went, you know, 43 centimeters past the 22-meter line. It comes back. I was more in shock. But that was a throw that pretty much made made my world championship. So lucky yeah. for me, Christian didn't qualify for the world championship. And I, and, and no disrespect to, to Adam Nelson. But he was, Christian was pretty much the only person I thought even had a chance in the world to beat me <laughs> at, world, at the Worlds. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I trained with Adam all the time. I knew what Adam's game was. I knew how to put pressure on him. I knew what I needed to do to make sure that Adam wasn't going to go and have the greatest meet of his life. So, I mean, I started that meet at 2180. 
So that put pressure on him. He came back 2160. I came back at 2167. Uh, um, he, he pressed, threw one throw outside. When he threw the throw out to the left sector, I knew I had him. So just to make sure he knew that there's no chance he could come back, go 2202 or three or whatever it was. And that pretty much had him. I had the meat from that moment on. And, and that rest of the meat he pressed, he didn't, he went outside of what he needed to do technically. Yeah, and I think a lot of people overlook that that performance. I mean, you had that locked down from the first throw. Like, oh, yeah. That meat was awesome. Uh, the same thing happened in 2006. Like, the oh, Christian, when Christian did not make it to the final in 2006, um, I knew that I was going to win the thing in Moscow. Yeah. Yeah. I knew it because, it, I, I mean, I literally walked around and stared at him and now, like, you're going to lose today. And, you know, the, it, when you got it, when, you, when you're when you in that kind of shape, boy, it is awesome. Yeah, and that's, like, watching you compete when you're on, you know, and, and, and that 2203 from Osaka, that's, you know, that's something that I actually use as a technical model, mainly because the footage is pretty good. It's a good angle. Yeah. Um, the 2243, the angle's not overly great. No. You split up the, the, the footage. But it's just, you can see... Just by your reaction when you see a high twenty-one meter throw land, and you're just like, "Up oh, there it is again. It's going to keep coming." You know, that's you know, from a spectator's perspective, it's it's freaking awesome. So, oh yeah, uh, uh, I, I I love that video. Um, but yeah, Reese, walk us through what you're doing now professionally and what what your goals are and where. So, uh, right now. I, you know, I have my own academy, Hoffa Those Academy. I also have uh, Hoffa Massage, where I just needed something to do in between throwing sessions because I don't see kids until 4 o'clock because they're in school. And, um, oh, just lost me again. <laughs> Blue it again. That's fine. Oh no, that's me. That's me. Oh. I think I lost you. 